0: Hey, everybody, welcome to the Full Frame Podcast. Uh, Just uh, just, uh, stop and take it from the top.
1: Okay, okay, you ready?
0: From our pre-interview conversation, there's another subject we need to talk about, which is your editing and final cut. Oh, yes, yeah, 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 (laughs)
1: that's right. And we were kind of... uh, Yeah, uh, I guess sharing some story, some Final Cut stories, because it really, uh, I think I was telling this before, but I started on Final Cut way back in high school. First, I was on Premiere, like a bootlegged Premiere or something like a (laughs) million years ago. Uh, And then I was on Final Cut, like the original Final Cut. and I just stuck with it. And even after I worked, I was working in a finishing house, um, like a post-production finishing house, uh, the year before Final Cut 7 got uh, fin- like was just essentially replaced by 10. Right. And everyone at that finishing house was like was really upset. I remember they're like, how could they do this? And and I totally understood that because there was all this functionality like they had to uh, print to tape or ingest things from, uh, you know, beta cam or whatever. And, and final cut 10 just couldn't do that anymore. So I got it. Um, but what I didn't get as much and where I saw the opportunity was just the creative flexibility of final cut because, um, creative filmmakers sometimes were complaining about it too. And I'm not saying it didn't have its flaws, but like from day one, that magnetic timeline, which everybody hated, I thought like, this is amazing. Like I can just take any chunk of the movie, And by the way, I just did that even on my feature um, this past week. There's a big section that just got moved to a different place. And I was anticipating such a more difficult experience having to do that edit. Um, And it's like just select everything and drag it. And it's basically done. Maybe you finesse a couple of audio fates or something. And again, it's not for everybody. I, I hate to ever like impose my process or tools I use on people, but I will say for anyone listening that hasn't really given Final Cut 10 a fair shake it's totally worth it and it's $300. Like I spent $300 on that 8 years ago or whatever it was and like it's still working right f- you know as opposed to like $50 a month for Adobe Suite and uh and you're paying that for the rest of your life. So right. I mean it, there, there's a case to be made for sure. It's so um it, I yeah
0: I was a Final Cut in high school i learned avid at school and then immediately <laughs> i learned like the very basics and i was like uh, I, I i had final cut and i just edited all my projects on final cut seven yeah loved it and then um yeah i as soon as i got out of school the production house i worked at i was like he, everyone was it, it was all the rage to just shit on final cut 10 oh, totally and totally. then i i end up at a place that edits in final cut 10 and within <laughs> you know two weeks i'm like oh i
1: totally get this like this well, is I, awesome. yeah and you know what like th- looking at it at the time when it first came out i was like at the cusp of uh i i feel like i was sort of like at the end of my generation because i'm like still a millennial technically but i was seeing this next generation come in and my generation was still kind of hanging on to Final Cut 7 in the way that I would have seen, like, my parents' generation hang on to antiquated technology right. that, like, they still haven't, you know, maybe figured out how to replace, right. you know, uh, and, like, landlines or, or, you know, whatever. And at the time, I was like, okay, first of all, I can learn everything. And I did use both for a while. I had Premiere, and I still use it for some client stuff when it's requested. But... Um, but i was like you know what if i'm really going to invest my time in like trying to master one of these tools i'd rather it be final T- final cut 10 because i believe and it was a total hunch but i believe that that next generation coming up that was like you know still in high school wh- why would they ever want to learn uh, like let's say avid which is right. so rigid and again i'm not saying avid's bad people make millions of dollars a year editing on avid huge hollywood feature. so again not a knock just my opinion but like from like a high schooler's perspective and these are the next generation of filmmakers and editors that are going to open their own post houses and create their own workflows like they have grown up with everything on at their fingertips on their phones and like to even edit on a computer let alone on like a phone is probably like a stretch for 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 some of them um but to me it was like okay there's no way that this next generation is not embracing final cut 10 so even though like The older people, like, you know, my age, older people (laughs) or whatever, didn't love it as much. Like I, I sort of believed in the future of Final Cut 10 and I still do. And I think it's gotten better than ever. And it's, uh, it was such a, a breeze to just edit this entire feature on it. Um, and it's only taken so long because it, uh, it was like creative decisions were being made, but the actual mechanics of editing the film Uh, have could not have been more more effortless and a big part of its final cut for sure
0: so you know it's interesting is one of the key you know the feature i'm working on there's all these questions that i had i wanted to answer and one of which was i started the feature when i was at the post product the production house not a post production house and the production house i learned final cut in and we based our whole editing model on final cut Um, including like our what servers we used and stuff like that. It was all based around Final Cut. And so one of the um, questions I wanted to answer was, can a feature go through Final Cut? What would that experience be like? Because back when we started, not a lot of people had done it. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's interesting when I think back on it is Final Cut is much so good for documentary and corporate work that I got to believe Apple was not, they're not, look. I don't think they were looking at the film community necessarily. I think they were looking at the next, the broadening of the video industry. Yes. What Final Cut was made for because it is to make uh, corporate videos for the web, social media videos final there is nothing better than Final Cut to me totally agree yeah I
1: think um they focus less on like I think that the one thing I really have learned a lot from Apple in this sense is and they've made plenty of mistakes as well but um I genuinely believe that before any of the marketing comes into play before any of like anything, it's like, can we make a good product? And how do we make the best product? And you may not agree that it's the best product, maybe it's not for you. Um, but with Final Cut, it's like they just wanted to make a better editing system that represented where things are going. And I think you're totally right. I think where things are going is 99% of content being made and videos being edited are not feature films. Like, right. um, But at the same time, uh, assuming that was sort of their philosophy going into it, It edits feature films better than any system I've ever used, you know, and as far as the creative abilities, but even in terms of the reliability, um, it, as anyone that's listening to this knows if they edit with final cut, uh, 10. You don't lose anything it saves every single keystroke that you make every edit that you make it saves automatically it auto backs everything up so you can go to older versions even if you didn't save them um it uh, it in the process of editing over a year i think i literally had Final Cut crash only uh, two times that I can remember. Uh, And that's with, uh, it's such a messy project file, not even organized (laughs) properly. There's like 45, literally 45 to 50 different versions of the edit. So it's a massive, like 200 and some, no, bigger. It's like a 600 and something gigabyte project file at this point. Right just runs like the, on my, you know, now seven-year-old Mac pro trash can, it's like, it's fine. It runs perfectly. Yeah. So I don't know. It's like for me, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it's, it's been working well so far for sure. So the we'll, we'll move on to another subject matter
0: so that we don't spend half the podcast oh, like, talking yeah. how good final cut is, <laughs> but you know, what's been a, a recent within the past six months, um, more of a, um, Even more of a creative like release for me is the fact that, um, you know, my film, I made a bunch of proxies of all my footage and I'm editing off of a one terabyte SSD drive that is half the size of my iPhone. I'm editing the entire film and I'm editing it on the plane ride to another state, to another city, you know, where I'm finding it just makes it so easy to find those two or three hours of um,
1: you know, just time that life gives you. Yes, and the flexibility in terms of your environment. Because I, I don't know if you find this, but so often it's like if I just get up and like let's say I'm writing, I, I have my laptop out and I'm writing and I get stuck and get writer's block, whatever you want to call it. If I just literally stand up, go sit in the living room, open the blinds, get a different view, you know, have an iced tea, like just change the mood a little bit, like boom, everything's good. It's just like yes. There's just something about sitting in the same place all day, every day that like, it, again, everybody's different, but for me, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. And and when you're editing, you're forced to be anchored to your desk, basically the same spot all day, every day. I feel like my eyes are sometimes at the end of like an eight, nine, eight, 10 hour session, like they're drying up. And like, I just feel like sickly and like the ability to take a laptop with an SSD drive or just to have maybe even an internal two terabyte or whatever you need and just, uh, yeah, take it to the coffee shop and edit for an hour or like you're lying in bed and you can't sleep. Like, cool, I got my laptop. Like it allows you to um, integrate the work so much more organically into your lifestyle as opposed to feeling like, I need an office. I have to sit down. Once I'm here, that's the only thing I could do because that kind of takes the fun out of it a little bit. Yep. Uh, and sometimes you need that. Um, and sometimes that's the best thing for it. But um, I guess a laptop situation gives you the the flexibility to kind of do both. Yeah. Yeah. It's been I was editing over the weekend in
0: bed with my dog. That's awesome. <laughs> like, that's like, so yeah. I was working on my feature film.
1: It was so fun. Um, well, yeah, and you'll come up with different ideas like that, right? because yes, like, you're not totally. uh, the pressure is not on in the same way. I don't know. That's that's cool. I think more people are are going in that direction. And I was talking about this with a couple friends recently. But you know, the new Mac Pro is so enticing, and it's so fast, and it's such a beast. And you know, uh, I'm I'm definitely intrigued by it to say the least. But at the same time. you know, if I ran a post house, which like at one point I thought that was maybe going to be my path. If that was like, I'd probably, you know, have a couple of those on order right now, if you can even order them. But, um, but yeah, for what, like, do you really need a Mac pro? (laughs) Like, can you get it done? Even my laptop, like, you know, I'm, I love the new 16 inch MacBook pro, but like, I've got an older 15 inch and like I'm editing my features sometimes on this too. I'll plug my raid into it and put it in another room. You know, it's happened a couple of times and it's fine. So it's yeah. like, do I really need like another laptop? Like, right. can I put that money into a, a movie or like advertising for one of my movies? Like, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to get sucked into that, um, you know, technological hole, I guess. Yeah. Which I, yeah, I've fallen victim to for sure.
0: Well, and you know, it's um, I wasn't gonna. I got into this with another filmmaker, which was um, we're living in a world, uh, especially filmmakers now. And this is my only critique of like no film school is we're so tech. Like it's so much about the tech or tech first, or you're inundated with what's going on with the tech. And the cameras and the new lenses and whatnot, that it does, I felt um particularly like working on a film and trying to get to an end, a deadline, or an end, a finish line, um, it becomes a little too much. I don't know what your thoughts are on that or if you feel just overburdened with some of that sometimes.
1: No, I do, and I think it's funny because I look at the evolution of my own blog over the years, and when I first started it was all about tech. It was like hacking the GH2 and yeah. all these super technical articles. And I still have some of those because I am interested in them and I'm sort of technically minded in a lot of ways. But um, but the technical stuff has to have a purpose. And I think where it gets kind of dangerous is when people are obsessed over the tech uh, to the detriment of the creative as opposed to using it as a means to be creative. Like right. the whole reason I love technology and understanding it, like I'm doing this, you know, side note, but like right now I'm like, I have this 16 millimeter film camera and like, I sent it to New York, like across the country to get serviced, convert it to like ultra 16. It's this like experimental widescreen 16 format. Like I love that stuff. I totally nerd out on it. So I get it. Uh, but at the same time, um, like, again, it always comes down to the purpose it's like, why are you learning this stuff? Like, why does this actually matter? are you going to use this so you can go and make a feature film and not have to ask someone for money for it? If so, then that's a great use of your time. But if you're learning it because you're actually procrastinating and you're going to hire a DP anyway, and he's going to have his own camera anyway, and you're just kind of not really spending time on your script or on the things that are actually going to make a bigger difference, then that can get dangerous. So I think it's like, like I said, I'm all for being technical. I'm I'm super super techy in a lot of ways, but um that you have to have a purpose for it. Otherwise it, it's it's a waste of time, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, I I feel
0: um I love it, you know, like I love reading all the specs about the new Panasonic H- SH1, you know, and being up yep. to but yeah, um there's I you have especially as a micro budget filmmaker you do have to take a step back and go okay but like making a film to film on that camera cannot be the purpose
1: exactly and at all uh, like I said before this morning I was watching these like canned short films and and if you ever do that and you watch these films these shorts really quickly The interesting thing is you realize like they all look different. Like some of them don't have the best production value. Some of them are shot on film. Some are digital. Some are six minutes. Some are 20 minutes. Like they're all over the place. So I think a lot of times when people go down these rabbit holes with tech, it's like they actually believe that there is one answer, that there is like one camera that is the best camera. And if they shoot on that camera, everything else is going to be better or easier or easier. And no, I mean, like, sure, some cameras look better than others, like, you know, just to your subjective eye, or some cameras have better functionality than others, better autofocus, like, they're going to be able to, you know, work more seamlessly in the field, Th- that stuff all matters. Um, but again, if if that's to the detriment of focusing on on what matters even more, then, then you're in trouble. And the more movies you watch, the more you realize, like, it none of that stuff like at the end of the day like lumix is marketing language that's trying to convince you to buy their next camera like um you know nobody from lumix is making uh palm door winning short films they're they're right. making uh consumer grade electronics so like right it's yeah. like you know like where do we want to take our our advice from so Um, that's how I think of it. But again, that's coming from, I'm super hypocritical because like I could, you know, I'm looking to my side now and two, four, five, six, I have at least six cameras just within my own field of view. (laughs) So, uh, well, knowing, knowing to put
0: it away is, I guess is the lesson here. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So I, I have one more question related to psychosynthesis before we jump into our conversation about tug. Yes, and yes. your release but i wanted to get a sense of what is your writing process like are you an outliner or are you just a jump into the script and edit 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 type
1: of person yeah i am an outliner i've uh never been so like i'll rewrite as much as i need to but i feel like i need to really know the purpose of the story first um yeah. i i've over the years, I've experimented with everything from doing like cue cards to really lengthy treatments, beat sheets, all the rest of it. Um, what I found works for me is uh, a long process up front of just really thinking and writing down notes. So it may be just like, like, for example, in the last feature on psychosynthesis, like, what is the, what really is this story? Like, is it about her transformation is about the relationship like what's kind of the thing that it hinges on um and like what's the best angle is this a genre film is it, you know i just like to be kind of cerebral with it for as long as i need to be and then once i feel like okay that's the movie i know what the movie is in my head or what it should be and the sort of dna is there then i'll start trying to create some more specific beats and i'll do a beat sheet um And this film, what I did was I basically did a beat sheet first of like 15 to 20 beats or something. So, you know, every, every other scene almost in the movie was written down and then I filled it in with another 20, 30 beats. So I probably had 40, 50 beats that were almost scenes. And then once I reworked that two or three times, put it in a drawer for a few days, take it back. Um, But I didn't want to, you know, take it too far to the point where I just got sick of it or, you know, lost any spontaneity. Um, And then I just went in and I wrote the first draft of the script. Um, Now I forget, but I wrote a whole blog post on it. I think it was in like five days I did the first draft. Oh, wow. Um, And it changed a lot. It was, you know, two months, three months after of rewrites and fixing stuff and adding things and whatever. But um but that's just kind of how I work. It's like get as like spend a year if I need to like thinking, but then when it comes time to write, just get that vomit draft done as quickly as possible because I know it's going to get revised 20 more times anyway. I just need to get something uh instinctual on on the page so I can look right. at it and see where where the holes are and what needs to be fixed. Do you consider yourself a writer? Do you like the writing process? I actually do. Over the years, uh, I've grown to really love it and I miss it when I don't do it. I think, though, like most like I I, I definitely think of myself first and foremost as as a director, like I would still be directing if I couldn't write. But I don't know if I would still be writing screenplays if I couldn't direct. I'd probably be writing like something else. Um, Yeah. But, uh, you know, one thing that I found sort of helpful for me was so many other parts of the craft, editing, directing, cinematography, like I love them so much while I'm doing them. But writing is something that like, I love it like when I'm finished with it. It's almost like yeah. when you go to the gym, you don't enjoy that much, but then like later you feel really good. And I think writing is is like that. And I always used to wonder like does that mean I just shouldn't write? like is it not as does it not come as organically or something? But then you hear so many other writers talk and they're all like writing is like the most painful thing. like I sit there and I stare at a blank page and like, you know, it just the amount of like determination it takes to finish like a novel or even an essay like it's it it's tough work. So I wouldn't say that I enjoy it in the moment as much as like like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, who seems like he's just having a ball when he's writing yeah. like yeah. I'm definitely not that kind of writer. But uh, but it, it feels really good when I finish something uh, and it's almost like a meditation or something where you get to like go into your own thoughts and do some like do some work and some thinking and then hopefully at the end of it, you come out with something that that you're proud of.
0: Do you like to write alone or is your, do you like to discuss what you're writing? In, you know, are, are you someone who wants to talk about it constantly? or Are you someone who needs to go off, think on it, be in the room alone, think, write down what type of
1: person yeah. are you like that? I, a little bit of both. So initially I'd say I'm probably like 70, 30 isolated and alone and then 30% talking because, um, I'm, you know, I, I, during the creative process, I try to be as open-minded as possible. I try to be, um, open to as many ideas as possible. Um, but when there are too many ideas coming at you and that's, that's how you feel, then you run the risk of, uh, totally like going on a tangent or thinking something's bad before you've even given it a chance or trying too many ideas before your core idea was even fully explore it's uh, early stages I like to do a lot of the thinking and stuff myself Um, but then once I start to look at the beat sheet maybe before I write the script I'll bounce the ideas off someone maybe there's a big revelation that changes something Um, maybe not and then I'll do the same thing kind of with each draft so there's definitely feedback and conversation but not in the sense like I know some directors like to just you know or writers will just go in a room with like a bunch of buddies and, you know, talk about their, their idea. And then the script kind of comes from that, which is really cool too. I've just never had that experience myself. So I, not to make this about
0: me, I, I asked cause, um, that was one of the things I have learned about myself over the course of doing this latest feature is how much I hate, I hate writing the script. Mm-hmm. I love, I love the outlining. I love the story creation to the point that I've actually I'm thinking about like, okay maybe I need to think about like writing short stories as a form of keeping creative juices flowing in a blog form or something like that, where I enjoy the kind of novel um, format, the prose format. Um, But I also love talking to actors and bouncing ideas off of the HMD team. Mm-hmm. Um, and having those discussions, the one part of the writing process I absolutely hate is actually getting into the script.
1: Um, yeah. Well, I, I, th- I think that's normal, though. And I think, like, every writer, like I said, like Aaron Sorkin, like all these, you know, famous uh, screenwriters, like, they have the same emotion because it's not you know, you just doubt yourself, you're staring at the page and, and I I don't know if this is true in your case, but I would imagine if you enjoy the writing process and all these other respects, but it's just that moment of actually putting it on the page. Um, Maybe do you think it could be because in that moment, it feels more definitive or something like, okay, now we're not having fun with it anymore. This is the actual document or something or. I, I think maybe, I think that's a good point is, yeah, I'm
0: putting pen to, or I'm putting my fingers to the keyboard. Yep. And I, I think it's also like, this is going to get judged mm-hmm. or this is what's going to get picked apart. And it's, I think there's to a certain extent, it's like you just know that this is not there's so much work to do. Yeah. Even well, before I, you've done the work, you know, you know that that page is going to get ripped apart exactly. rightfully so though,
1: you know. Oh yeah, I I think of that all the time, not even in the context of writing, but just other things I spend my time on. I'm like when you're on that first step and you're like oh my god like what am i doing (laughs) like three years from now i'm still gonna be somehow working on this thing that i just started and you know i i think it comes down to two things in the context of writing and getting past that and i think number one and uh and this is just my way around it but i think number one is like if the idea that in the story that you're telling it matters that much to you, then I think that helps you get past it. Because if it's something like, like there's an idea I have for a film I haven't written, but like it has a really important message I think to it and something that is, is very like meaningful to me personally. So I know as hard as it may be to write any script, including that one, I don't doubt that like I'd spend five years if I had to on that because I think it's important enough. So I think having the right idea that you're connected to is like the number one thing that you could do but i also think just giving your yourself permission uh to like fail with the first draft and telling yourself nobody's ever going to see this and like literally like give yourself a contract or leave a sticky note <laughs> on the on the laptop that says like no one will ever read this but me like just remind yourself of that i think that can help because um you know when you're writing i see this even if i'm writing a blog post uh the second I start thinking about, oh well, I said this line. Is someone going to take that the wrong way, or Is someone going to be like offended? I'm like, nobody's reading this draft. Like, don't right. worry. Keep going. Read it back later in an unemotional state. And if that still seems like it's not worded right, then fix it. Right. Um So I don't know. I, I don't know if that helps, but that those are kind of the two things that that I found. Uh, no, that I think you're right super helpful to hear and I think you're absolutely right
0: is um you're gonna you're gonna be the next one to read it yes so (laughs) you will be the first guard before it gets you know ripped apart or
1: whatnot so and um, and also it never even has to get ripped apart because you never have to show it to anyone if you could do 100 drafts if you still hate it you never have to show it to anyone. The other thing is, and this is something that I definitely have had to learn and I'm still very much learning, but as far as like the the feedback, so it's one thing to not want, like on the first draft, nobody should really want feedback because it's no matter who you are, it's not going to be probably a great draft. Um, but at the same time, and this applies to releasing your films, editing your films, writing, whatever. Uh the thought of someone else like ripping it apart can kind of stop you in your tracks i know yep. that's happened to me where i've just like said oh this isn't good enough i'm gonna like quit and i've like shot films i haven't released like i've done all sorts of stuff for that reason um at the same time though i think when you you know well you said you do corporate work right or you said yeah like, commercial. yeah so on that stuff when you get feedback from your clients like it's probably not that emotional right like it, even if they yeah. don't like a video i'm sure they l- love all your videos but let's just say you know i know and like i've had a couple of videos over over the years where like a client didn't like it and they came back and they had some pretty harsh feedback i may not have liked that feedback but it didn't make me feel like terrible as like a person in the same way if you write a script and someone yes. gives you feedback then you're like oh my god like. I'm useless (laughs) like yeah no so i think it's just a matter of getting used to it and knowing everybody gets bad feedback everybody gets good feedback some feedback doesn't really matter and some feedback matters a lot but the more comfortable you get with that the better off your films are the better you are as a filmmaker and i think the less um likely you are to get stuck in the mud when you're trying to write because that voice that's like what if people hate this it's like cool, let them hate it, because then it's going to get better, you know, on right. the next draft. So and again, like everything else, like I'm as guilty of it as anyone, but it's just something that I've sort of been tuning into and trying to, you know, practice what I preach a little bit more in in, in recent years. One thing that
0: I've picked up from working so much in the doc and corp world is, you know, uh, DC everyone emails. Mm -hmm. And what I realized, um, because I back in November, I sent the first cut out of the film to a bunch of people that I wanted to get that were important to hear their feedback. But the caveat um, that I put was, I don't want to don't think that we're going to have a phone call about this. I'm not going (laughs) to spend two to three hours, even my best friends who I know are doing it for, they want to talk to me and they want to talk it out. But one thing I've realized is, for most people, if it's important enough of a note, they'll figure out how to write it. Yes. yeah. Putting yeah, yeah. it in the form of a sentence makes that note important. There's been so many notes that I'm like, I, you'll get halfway through and you're like, no, this isn't important. Like, why am I saying this? No, no, no. Just delete this whole thing. You know, it doesn't really matter. Yes. Yeah, and right. that's become part of my process is getting, I ask people to email me Yep. Write down your feedback so that I can go through and read it and reference it. And it also takes away any emotion that yes. a, a, a poorly worded sentence, even from a friend, could sit spiral you into, oh, my God, like half my film is not working, you know, yeah, all yeah, of that yeah. stuff. It, it, it just taking out the emotion is, has become really important for me.
1: I totally agree. And that's such a great way to do it. I haven't tried that myself, but I think that makes total sense. Yeah. Limiting people to the written format, it makes them be more concise. And a lot of times with notes and feedback that you, you get from people, um, it's not that they're, they're necessarily wrong, but sometimes the, the solution that they propose may not be right for your movie, but the problem that they've diagnosed is correct or at least the section. So at least in writing, you can kind of more, uh, more, uh, I guess, con- in a more concrete way, sort of look at everything, all your notes from all your different people who you've sent it to and cross-reference and say, okay, everybody has a note on that scene in the kitchen, in the second act, like clearly something is wrong with that scene. Maybe right. none of them know how to fix it, but they've all it like struck a weird chord with them. So that yeah. must mean something. And yeah, having it in a written form as opposed to just talking and getting overwhelmed with people throwing ideas at you is is a much more succinct way, I think, to kind of to, to work and move ahead with it. So, the last big, um, uh, w-
0: let's first talk about, um, again, going back to psychosynthesis is, uh, can you describe kind of your, how you're talking about marketing or thinking about marketing? Because we talked a little bit about it in the pre-interview. Um, yes. Because you're doing some interesting, very, again, very micro-budget um, initial steps but there's been a big kind of
1: wrench thrown into it too that we were gonna to get to, so. Totally, so uh, my my overall goal is basically to just find an audience with the film first and foremost. And uh, because it was made for such a low budget, I didn't have to feel that we have to, you know, sell it all the rights to some legacy type distributor that yeah. maybe we'll break even on, but nobody will ever see this movie. It'll, you know, play on some airline and some country that uh, you know I'll I'll never <laughs> right. get to go to or you know right. what I mean so like there's a lot of that sort of stuff that happens at the film markets like AFM in particular and that's okay for some films but for this again it's not as much about making money as it is finding an audience and having um and just learning something from it like i i um this is uh, again a bit of a tangent but i think it's relevant i I recently posted this newsletter. Um, I do like a Sunday newsletter every week. And I, I did this one. It was all about uh, mindset of learning well versus doing well. And um, and the whole idea was that people that, and it, by the way, it was taken from this book called Insight, which was amazing. Um, but the whole idea was that people who approach tasks wanting to do well um, and just like get a seal of approval and have people pat them on the back, um, they're far less successful from the ones that want to, like their goal is to learn. Like, sure, they hope to have a great outcome with their project, their film, whatever it is. um, But it's not about how much money you'll make. It's not about some quantifiable metric that they could measure. It's just like Am I going to learn a lot from this process? So I, I try to sort of bake that into everything that I do, distribution included. Um, I have a little bit of knowledge on distribution from my last feature, which I self-distributed, but I've learned a lot from that, including what not to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that I'm applying to this film. But in this, by the same token... I'm trying a lot of new ideas right now with this film that um, I believe they're going to work, but I have no guarantees of them. And I'm okay with that because even if they don't work, as long as I learn that they don't work, then the next time around, I will not implement those ideas or I'll try a different strategy. So um, with that in mind, you know I kind of give you that caveat because it's a little more experimental. But uh, at this point, I just think that independent films need to be released in a different way. There, There's... It's too much content being made. You know, 15,000 movies are submitted to Sundance. There's only so many slots available at festivals. There's, you know, you could put your movie on iTunes or on Amazon. Anyone can do that now. But who's going to find it? Nobody's going to find your movie. Uh, It doesn't matter how good it is. If people don't know it exists, they won't find it. And then there's the whole marketing aspect in the traditional sense, and even sort of modern traditional sense of like buying Facebook ads or whatever, which you can totally do. But again, uh, that often just is in a best case scenario, like a break even Situation. So for me, going into this film, having already kind of done that on my last film, you know, broke even, made a little bit of money from it. Um, but felt like, you know what, we could do better on this one. We can reach more people. We could make it more of a thing, more of an event. So the the hope and the plan and the goal is to uh, do a hybrid distribution strategy where we will work with a distributor uh, when we eventually go on VOD and uh, other on, you know, TVOD, SVOD, et cetera, um, because the distributor can help us get a better rate, in particular from Amazon, um, as opposed to one cent per hour that they're currently paying right. filmmakers. Um, but prior to any of that, the goal is to do a bunch of theatrical engagements and screenings on our own terms, um, where we'll do them starting here in LA, and then we'll uh, potentially do other cities, whether it's New York or Toronto. Uh, like I said, where I'm from, we have some resources up there. Um, and uh, And eventually, ideally, I'd like to almost franchise these screenings to other filmmakers and other communities who might want to uh, set up a like a local screening to show other filmmakers in their town? Hey, here's a cool micro-budget film. Or not just filmmakers, other fans of the film, other people interested in the subject matter. Um, so the whole idea is basically rather than rush it onto VOD platforms, let's do what most like micro budget films don't even consider doing which is theatrical like a theatrical diy which is like totally against the grain and again may totally fail i don't know we'll check back a year from now but but i do believe that it'll be successful because I think, um, when you create an event, you have so much more opportunity, uh, to separate what you're doing from other people. It affects the marketing. It affects the way that you're able to monetize the event and the sales. Um, I know I'm touching on a lot, but one other important component is when you have an event, uh, you can sell other products at the event. And in most cases, micro budget films don't make money. Even if you sell them yourself, DIY, you, you know, put all the sweat equity in the world into marketing those films aren't really you know again best case scenario most of the time they break even that's just the reality and that's okay maybe your goal isn't to make money but it would be nice to make some money with the movie so you could put that into your next movie or so you can show investors that you're profitable um so in order to do that we're going to create some really really unique merchandise around uh the film and not just stuff like t-shirts or branded stuff which you know everybody does um and I'm sure we'll have some of that. But some other cool products that are uh I wish I could talk about them now because they're still in the works, <laughs> but we'll 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 let that we'll bring you back product. to talk about it. Exactly. But I think some stuff that's really kind of different and innovative and where um, it wouldn't be unrealistic for us to make um, more revenue by a long shot from some of these uh, ancillary products that we would be selling alongside the film um, as opposed to strictly from the film itself. Like The film is just a way... uh, I've talked about this before, but it's like Amazon is if you think of their business model like they don't make money by having my film on their platform they make money by having it there because someone subscri- wants free movies and that's right. a free movie they can offer but really that person is going to go and buy toilet paper or something from Amazon and that's how they make their money it's kind of the same thing like you take that Amazon model you apply it to your own film Okay, how do I use the film not as a means to just sell directly, but as a means to gather an audience and get people who might be interested in other products, other services, other uh, potential items that could be profitable, get them into the same room together and, uh, and and see who bites on some of these different offerings. So again, we'll see how it works uh, or not, but I'm I'm super excited about it. Uh, and I know you wanted to talk about tug, which factors into this. So, like, well, I just wanted this- to, I wanted to
0: bring it up as a, um, kind of, uh, well, you brought it up before we started recording as a, um, uh, you know, you were going to use tug and now it's kind of, I guess, gone away and I- I'll need you to kind of inform me. Cause I, d- I haven't read any articles about it yet.
1: Yeah. Well. I could be totally incorrect, but our uh, friend Alex Ferrari, who's who's great about <laughs> releasing all of these, uh, you know, major bombs about like distributors, like he, he broke the news of Distriber when they were screwing filmmakers over before they went bankrupt and whatever happened with them. Yeah, um, you know, he broke that news uh, and literally like an hour before our call, I just saw that he had posted something on Twitter uh, that tug. Uh, which is a platform, uh, I'll explain what it is in a second, actually, but Tug basically is essentially going through the same thing Distriber went through. uh, And filmmakers are getting, you know, feeling like they're in trouble now. and, And it's a really bad situation. And luckily we have not, released the film yet but we were strongly considering going ahead with tug and i actually sent paperwork to tug last or late as last week like they were emailing me like there was no issue um but yeah i guess to contextualize it so tug for anyone that doesn't know uh is or was a platform where they would connect filmmakers to theaters so if you wanted to show your movie at a great movie theater in your hometown or wherever you are, um, you didn't have to pay for that theater. You you wouldn't have to, you know, what's called four walling it, which is pay the theater to rent the room. And then you keep all the ticket sales instead tug would essentially broker the deal. Um, you all split a third. So tug takes a third, you as the filmmaker take a third and the theater takes a third of the ticket sales. You have to meet a minimum of let's say like 70 or 80 ticket sales. Right. Um, so it was a smart it was kind of a win-win. It's like theaters that aren't using an extra, like they have a multiplex and there's an extra theater in there. Why not like let some indie filmmaker try to sell a bunch of seats? And if so, they'll take a third, the cut and all the popcorn money and concession money, which again, speaking of ancillary products, you know um, but uh, you know, so what I was planning to use it for uh, was are uh, what i was hoping to do and i still may do this just with our own system but i wanted to franchise screenings of our film so yes we're going to do our own screenings um some of which we were planning to use tug for but we could also just four wall those i'm not really concerned about that um but it's really these other screenings where i wanted to open up the door for filmmakers all over the country who might be interested in bringing this film to their hometown and actually making some money with it to say, Hey, um, cool, you have a a film I like, I believe in, I wanna partner up with you. I'm going to rally up the troops here in my hometown. I'm gonna use this tug platform to book a theater, put your movie in the theater, but then I would split the profits with that person. I might even fly there, do a Q and A, or do one over Skype or whatever. Um, And it would be a way for them to number one, make some money, but more importantly, number two, learn about uh, the distribution process from the ground level, like on a very experimental sort of, uh, uh, you know, film, I guess, in that sense, in terms of the release strategy. So anyway, that still is very much the goal and the plan, but Tug now potentially going under is uh, is is going to make it a lot more complicated because their system was literally designed to do that and to make it super easy so it's, it's it's pretty you know sad and frustrating that they're going away but i i guess it's just the nature of this business it'll be very interesting i wonder if that is somewhat connected to what happened to
0: Distribur. and it'll be interesting to see kind of what the um because vhx you know a number of years ago fell apart and that was going to be another you know that was going to be netflix for indie films and um it's going to be very interesting the next year to two years and you should probably if you're you should probably just follow alex ferrari to find out about all the highlights but for sure i don't, I don't know where we're going to land um or is it all going to be swallowed up by amazon you know yeah
1: i don't know i mean the only apps and the only like distribution channels that I've seen who are doing it right are uh, platforms like Mubi. Uh, I don't know if you watch Mubi uh, or Tubi TV. Um, I don't wa- I watch Mubi. They all have such funny names. I watch Mubi, <laughs> but I don't watch Tubi that much. Um, Tubi is, I believe, an AVOD ad-based platform, so it's free to watch the movies. You just have to watch an ad. Um, I've used them with my feature, who originally uh, distribur or excuse me, no, uh, Film Hub, it's another company film similar Hub, yeah. to distributor. um, they take a percentage, they put the film on there and, um, it, it's not like it made a ton of money, but relative to how many people were watching the movie, it made way more money on 2 than on any other platform because on the other platforms, you know, Amazon will get you way more views, but again, you're basically giving it away for free. Um, But these platforms like MUBI, which are highly curated, they do 30 movies a month, one every day, and that's it. So every day you get a new movie, sometimes it's even a short film. And they're all really amazing films that have like gems that have premiered at like the Berlin Film Festival that never got released here, that, you know, got buried or something. So that is where I see the future Uh, In terms of like the online distribution component, because these sort of companies are actually providing a valuable service like iTunes, like these middlemen like distributor who are just there to put you on iTunes in a store where like that you don't even belong there, uh, really, and nobody's going to find you there. And like they're just taking your money like that's not really a sustainable business model like, you know, apps that have 30, you know, micro budget movies a month and you pay $10 for that that I could see working, you know, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a tough call as to say what's going to happen. But I I do think that I could be completely wrong about this, but I know a lot of tech companies, I don't know if distributor fell into this category or not. Um, A lot of tech companies take a lot of money in investment up front, you know, they're essentially seated, they don't bootstrap. And as a result, they don't have to be profitable. Uh, The, the, you know, owners of the company are essentially lining their pockets with investors' money and they're spending money where it doesn't need to be spent. And a lot of times that results in a company that's uh, five years later, the money dries up and it's not profitable. And, who ends up getting screwed, the filmmakers who have trusted in this company. So again, I don't know if that's what happened with them. You'd have to check with Alex Ferrari, but uh, I don't trust. Um, I think the lesson generally is like, don't trust the life of your film in the hands of uh, of any sort of tech distributor right now, because right. It, it, it's uh, it's not a, a wise thing to do. Uh, or if you do proceed with caution, at least.
0: Yeah, for sure. So uh, just to wrap up, Noam, um where first where
1: can people find you uh, yes. so they can follow you and see what you're up to. So sort of the hub of everything is just my personal blog, noamkroll.com, uh n o a m k r o l l.com. I always spell it cuz it's it's a funny spelling. <laughs> and then um yeah, everything else basically that's like I said the hub. So my podcast is plugged in through there, um links to my social media, my newsletter, Um, but I would recommend that people sign up for the newsletter. If you do one thing, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at gnomecrawl, all that stuff. And that's great. But if you follow anything that I do, um, it really should be my newsletter. Once a week, I send this email. Um, it's just uh, whatever thought I think is going to be most valuable for independent filmmakers, uh, whether it's like on the business side, on the creative side. And I put a lot of time into it, and it's grown substantially. So if anyone wants to sign up for that, I don't spam or anything. I just kind of send these, these emails once a week. Um, but go to gnomecurl.com newsletter, and there's a sign up form. And then podcast, show, don't tell. Uh, so if anyone wants to listen to the podcast, look it up on iTunes, uh, and, uh, and that's that, I think that covers it.
0: Yeah, guys, uh, I've, uh, I've signed up for the newsletter and it's like a little treat on your Sunday. Um, and it is jam packed full of really cool articles, um, that, uh, you know, you'll just get, uh, I did it, uh, before our pre-interview, I just kind of spent two or three hours just reading a bunch of gnomes articles and they, um, really hit home. Um, in terms of experience, talking not just about the tech, not just about the creativity of filmmaking, but also making that a part of your life and very, very grounded uh, content that I think you guys will connect to. So I'll put show a uh, link in the show notes so you can follow all of this. And I'll also post everything, um, including the trailer, to Psychosynthesis so you can get a sense of uh, what Noam and I are talking about in relation to his latest feature. And then, um, we talked about this, but, um, you know, some of the dates, some of the screening dates are a little up in the air right now or are not confirmed. So when they do get confirmed, um, we could have you come back on to kind of update people, but we can also post those dates, um, on the website, on the podcast post
1: later down the line when they're confirmed. So awesome. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, we're recording this right now, uh, I don't even know when it is January 28th,
0: <laughs> almost <laughs> the end know. of the
1: month. So yeah, you'll, you'll release it, um, closer to when we release the film, but we're still at least a couple months away from, uh, doing our first theatrical screening. Um, but that's awesome. If you want to include the links and if someone's listening to this after March or so definitely check there. Otherwise I'll make sure I post it on my site at dot Uh, and I'm sure it'll be all over social media and stuff too. So Uh, So we'll get it out there. But uh, thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. And uh, uh, like I told you offline, you'll have to come on my show and we'll do kind of another crossover, um, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun.
0: And uh, I do want to have one thing. Let's make a note right now is I'd love to have you back on when you guys are maybe a month or two into the theatrical releases, do an update about how that experiment is going. Um, Because I'd love to capture it in the moment because yeah, we'll be able yeah. to reflect on it in two years i'm sure if i can
1: have you back on the podcast yeah. then but i'd love to kind of document it in the moment for people hundred percent yeah i would uh i would love to do that and i'm sure there will be a lot of of uh things that worked a lot of things that didn't work so i'll, I'll want to share that with you in the audience 100 percent. cool man well thank you for coming on the show awesome thank you and uh we'll do it again i'm sure guys have a great week
0: Hey, guys, just want to remind you that not only can you find the Full Frame podcast on HMD's website, www.hmdfilms.com, but you can find us on Facebook and, most importantly, you can find us on iTunes, where we would really like if you could leave a review and subscribe. Thanks. Have a great week.